0: Hey, I'm Michael Woodley, pastor at First West. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here in just a second, we're gonna dive into God's word and to see what it says about who he is, about who we are, and about the hope that can be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that today God's word will encourage you, it'll challenge you, and it'll allow you to see that no matter where we find ourselves, there's always hope because of Jesus Christ. So let's dig in and see what God has for us today in his word. Hey, I want to invite you to take your Bible, go with me to Exodus chapter 7 is where we're going to be today as we continue our journey of the life of Moses, our series basket to casket the unsettled life of Moses. And if you haven't been with us, uh, we have just kind of tracked Moses' journey and seen that unsettled, I think it's a favorable word on Moses' life, especially to this point, the unsettledness of outward circumstances and his birth and uh, and kind of his early journey, but also the internal unsettledness of Who was he? And then uh, as we saw God calling him to something and excuses that he would throw out there of why uh, he didn't want to, why he thought others might be better suited for the job. Uh, And last week we saw what uh, I referred to in Tennyson last week as uh, kind of the weigh-in moment of this throwdown that was coming. Uh, But today we get to the throwdown. I hope you've had a good week this week, got to celebrate the fourth. Uh, Our family got to get away for a couple days over to Dallas, got to go to a Rangers game and uh, had a great time there. I I will uh, update you from several years ago. Y'all may remember we went to a game and got a ball at the game and my oldest got it and he gave it to his little brother and then his little brother dropped it in a storm train. I don't know if y'all remember that. (laughs) But we got another ball, and uh, Gavin got to keep it. So he's like, "I ain't giving this to anybody." I said, "I don't blame you." Uh, So we had a great time. Then we uh, we went to uh, a water park because I'm not a smart person. but we, uh, we had fun. And one of the things that is fun is our kids are old enough now we can ride the slides together. Like Kara, she makes the cut by about like half an inch over the minimum height required. Uh, but one of the slides that we were going down, it had you could go individual, like on an inner tube, so on an inner tube, or they had double tubes, like it was a tube with two spots that you could sit in. And it was like, hey, baby, you want, you want to do this? No, 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 no. I want the double tube, right? I, I want daddy right back there, Right. And man, what a great picture for us of the reality of life, right? Some of us, we know life right now feels like I'm just going down a slide. I am completely out of control. I got no say. It's just coming. Like, I'm just dealing with it as it comes, right? And, and, and truthfully, some of us, we feel like we're sitting on that inner tube and it doesn't have any handles, right? But today, here's what I want us to post. As we've seen in, in this journey so far, looking at Moses' life, a lot of unsettledness. Now, today I want us to consider the significance for Moses that in the midst of all the unsettledness, what it means to recognize who's sitting in the back of the tube. Right? Who it is that's sitting in the back of the tube. For 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 my kiddos going down those slides, right, they were they were scary to them, but they were brave to do it. But part of that bravery was being driven by the fact, Daddy's with me, right? Daddy is right back here. And the truth is, is that sometimes in the journey of life. The most significant encouragement in your life is this. I know who my God is. Sometimes it's the reality of knowing who God is that can make all the difference when life seems unsettled. And today, as we dive into these chapters, although we're not going to spend as much focus on Moses himself, we're going to spend the focus on talking about the nature of God and recognizing the difference that that had to make for Moses, because while he's now having to step into a moment here that we know initially he wasn't really big on, we're going to see that for Moses, it was significant of recognizing who was in the back of the tube, and that made all the difference for him. So I want to invite you to stand as we honor the reading of God's word. We're going to set the stage here in chapter 7, verse 1 through 7, all right? It says, The Lord answered Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron on your brother, will be, uh, and Aaron, your brother will be a prophet. You must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron your brother must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, And multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you, but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. So Moses and Aaron did this. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when he spoke to Pharaoh. Let's pray together. Father, today we give you this time. It is, it is solely yours for your doing. And God, as we turn our attention again to your word, we recognize the impact and influence, God, that it has in our lives and that it can have in our lives. And Lord, I pray today as we look at a pretty familiar story to many of us, I pray, God, that you would give us fresh perspective or a fresh word, God, to be reminded of the significance of who you are and in remembering who you are, knowing that that can make the difference, especially in those seasons when life feels out of control. So God, we give you this moment today. It's yours. We submit ourselves to all that you have for us now. It's your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. I got to say real quick, you know, we've been doing that standing. Uh, for a while now, and that is connected scripturally to what we find in the book of Ezra. It says, when the prophet Ezra began to read the word, the people just stood. Uh, there was just that respect and that response to God's word. But I was laughing the other day at someone was telling me, I said, You know, Michael, every time you have a stand to read when you get ready to preach, it's right after I've finally gotten comfortable that you make me stand up. So let me give you some encouragement. You don't have to stand anymore today, all right? So you're good, you're set. Uh, but when we dive into this passage, again, as I said, in, in one through seven, it's really kind of a foundation for us. Because hear this, we're going to cover chapter 7 through chapter 13 today. Now be thankful we didn't stand to read all of chapter 7 through chapter 13, right? Uh, But what we find here is really it's going to point us more than anything else to the nature of who God is, the nature of who God is. Today as we navigate these chapters of Scripture, I want us to recognize that while God is unparalleled in His power, He is also unmatched in His mercy. While God is unparalleled in His power, He is also unmatched in his mercy. And so today, as we navigate these six chapters, there's three kind of key moments that we're going to find here. The first one is the plagues. The second one is the Passover. And the third ultimately is the Exodus. And I know you're thinking, Michael, gosh, these are like all the really good parts of the story and you're handling them all at once. Yes, we are, uh, as we're trying to throw this series in uh, during the summer before the fall kicks off, and so we're handling it all at once. But I think there's a clear tie that we're seeing here, and it ultimately goes back to the nature of who God is. It goes back to the reality of who was in the back of Moses' tube, all right? So first thing I want us to consider is the plagues. And and let me just give you a, a summary statement here about the plagues, is that the plagues revealed God's power, right? The plagues revealed God's power. As we look here in chapter 7, as it's kind of setting the scene for, uh, for Moses and Aaron, uh, we see here that it tells us that these would be miraculous signs and wonders that would be done in the land of Egypt. And, and that they would be judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians for failing to let the Israelites go. Now, there is, uh, in chapter 7, there's kind of a a pre-show, if you will, to the plagues. So we see Moses and Aaron go in. Aaron throws down his staff. We see the magicians, uh, sorcerers, wise men of Egypt. Uh, They duplicate the act and throw their staffs on the ground, which turn to serpents. And then it tells us that Aaron's staff eats the other staffs. I just love that, right? Uh, I've always wondered, Woods, if his staff was bigger when he picked it back up. Who knows, right? But but we see this moment take place, but it tells us that Pharaoh's heart was hard and didn't listen. And at that moment is where we begin to see these plagues begin to unfold. Now, as we look at these plagues, I'll give them to you real quick here. Uh, the now turning into blood, frogs, gnats, the swarm of flies, uh, death of the livestock, boils, hell, locusts, darkness, death of the firstborn. All right, I didn't see humidity on there, but it might as well have been one, right? Uh, but, but we see these moments that are going to take place. And here's what I want you to recognize. That in all of these acts of judgment that are going to take place, there is one theme through all of it. And that is so that they would know that the Lord was God alone. So that you may know. We see that phrase over and over again. Most clearly, I think, in chapter, I'm sorry, in chapter 7, verse 5, right? What we just read. Look what he says here in verse 5 the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the Israelites from among them. Over and over again, in these moments that unfold, we see God clearly communicating that I am the Lord or that the Lord is in the land or so that the world may know over and over again. In fact, in 10 of the plagues that are mentioned, six of the 10 have a phrase very similar to that idea that is put out there over and over again, that Pharaoh would know that he is the Lord, that the world would know that he is the Lord. So even that Moses and the the following generations of Israel would know over and over again, his act of judgment through these signs and wonders so that people would know his power and his glory. We see several ways in these plagues, how this unfolds of knowing this. I think one is just knowing that his judgment here was not just over the oppression of the Egyptians. This was was about uh, his power over the Egyptian gods. That's important for us today to recognize that what God was doing in this moment, it wasn't just about rightfully punishing the Egyptians for how they had oppressed his people. This was about God showing his power over the gods of the greatest nation on the face of the earth in Egypt. Uh, Boyce says that there were uh, roughly eighty deities in Egypt, and that they could be clustered into roughly three different groups: the Nile, the land, and the sky and So, as you recognize these plagues, all of these plagues, in one way or another can be connected to these gods. It would be in these three. Clusters, whether that was the god of the Nile or gods that were depicted by frogs or even uh, Ray, the, who, who was the, the sun god, who was considered to be the king of all the gods. Over and over again, these plagues not only brought consequences. Listen carefully to this. Not only brought consequences to the Egyptians, but ultimately they humiliated their gods. All right? So uh, for us... 2023, watch all perish. Oftentimes, we read this and think, "Man, that should have been—that would have been very difficult on the Egyptians," and it was. But what we often miss is the reality that it was—it was kicking the legs out from under what they had built their life upon, these gods that they were entrusting themselves to. What God was showing is that compared to God Himself, they were nothing. How do we know that? Well, one of the ways He was clear in Exodus chapter twelve, verse twelve, He. He said, I will execute judgment, judgments against all the gods of Egypt. He said, clearly, listen, th- this is about the gods of Egypt. I- I'm showing you that I am the Lord, that you will know that, my, that I am in the land, right? Uh, one of the things that I love in this is you find in, uh, in, the, first, in the first plague where the Nile turns to blood. It tells us that Pharaoh takes these magicians, these sorcerers, these wise men. In fact, some believe that these are actually some of the priests of these temples to these false gods, Egyptian gods, that he gathers them and he says, basically, hey, do this. And it says in the first one that they duplicate it. They do it. We don't know how that they do it. Some believe that it was just an illusion that they pulled. I think that they're leaning into the demonic here. This is an occult here practice. They're they're leveraging the demonic to do what God has just done of turning water into blood. All right. And the second one in the frogs, the plague of the frogs, says the frogs come over the Nile and they're everywhere. When I say everywhere, I mean everywhere. Even as it says here, you're cooking in the kitchen, you're kneading bread in a bowl, and there's frogs in the bowl. No thank you, right? They're everywhere. These frogs are everywhere. And it says that he comes to the magicians and says, hey, do this, and they do it. But then you get to the third plague, the third plague of the gnats. It says the gnats were everywhere, kind of like... Louisiana, right? (laughs) In chapter 8, verse 18, it says, The magicians tried to produce gnats using their occult practices, but they could not. One and two, they could duplicate. But number three, they could. In fact, they say to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. There was a recognition in that moment of the priest, of these occult leaders, that what is happening here is beyond us. It is bigger than us. We are incapable, not not, not just to duplicate what God has done, as we find as this thing unfolds, they were incapable to provide relief for their people. So as these plagues, these signs and wonders of judgment, they are humiliating the gods of Egypt, and even the priests are unable to do anything about it. They would know that he is the Lord by his power to bring judgment over the gods, but also his power to bring relief. Right? Where where the magicians and the sorcerers weren't able to duplicate or to bring relief, we find even with the frogs, with the plague of the frogs, where uh, where Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, Listen, would would, would you just ask God to relent? Would you ask God to give up? Like, this is too much. And I love this. Moses says, Yeah, when would you like me to do it? And I. I, This is fascinating to me. Pharaoh says tomorrow. Why would you wait till tomorrow? Right? Right? Some of you, some of you ladies in here, you know, your husbands, like he says he'll get to it tomorrow. Why tomorrow? You got plenty of time today, right? But, but in this moment, right, he says tomorrow. And, and here's what Moses says. Moses says, I will go and I will make my appeal to the Lord. And I will do so so that you may know the earth belongs to Yahweh. And we see in several instances where Pharaoh comes to Moses, sometimes in false repentance, honestly, but but comes to him asking that that this judgment, that, that there would be relief from the judgment. And when it happens, Moses says, so that you may know. So that you may know that he is God. And so he's known not just in his power to bring the judgment. He was known in his power to bring relief from that judgment. Uh, he's known by his power to provide protection for his people. Again, I'm giving us a big overview here of not walking through every single plague. But, but you see moments where uh, in the fourth plague with the swarm of flies in verse 22 of chapter 8, it says, but on that day, I will give special treatment to the land of Goshen where my people are living. No flies will be there. This way you will know that I am the Lord in the land. So here the Egyptians are having to deal with these swarms of flies everywhere, but in Goshen where his people are at, no issue whatsoever. And over and over again, we find in, uh, in these plagues, as judgment is coming, God is protecting his people. In fact, it tells us, my, probably my favorite one is in the ninth plague, where it says that darkness had come over the sky. This was significant judgment. Again, talking about humiliating uh, the, the gods of Egypt. So Ray, the sun god, was believed by many to be the king of all the Egyptian gods. And so when there's darkness over the land for three days, not only is there the curiosity of what is happening, but it shuts life down in Egypt. In fact, it says for three days they don't go anywhere. That may sound confusing to us, but recognize in that day they didn't have cars with headlights, right? They didn't have their USB charger for their phone. They they had nothing but candles. And when that light goes out, right, you got nothing. And so, and it says that it was so dark, you couldn't see the person in front of you. But listen to this. It said that you could Feel the darkness. Have you ever been in that type of darkness before? Where you can feel it? Right, they could feel the darkness. But here's what it says. In Israel, they had all the light they needed. Three days, he shuts down life in Egypt, showing his power over the gods of Egypt. And yet for his people, they're completely protected. Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord. The last one, I would say, how, how, how is he revealing his power, revealing the fact of who he is, and that his glory will be rivaled by no other, is in his power to accomplish his purposes. No doubt, when you go to the plagues, there is fascination with the plagues, but the question that most often comes up is about God's dealing with Pharaoh. right? We, we see beginning in, in, uh, in chapter 3, as God's going to call um, Moses. He's saying, Moses, listen, I'm going to come down and I'm going to rescue my people. You'll go to, uh, to Pharaoh and ask him, but he, he will not respond favorably. And then we see over and over again in chapter four, and then here in chapter seven again, and then we're going to see it through all these different plagues about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. And there's a question that comes with that. And it is a fair and good question that goes to the nature of God, of how, how is how is God a good and fair God if Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened so that he didn't have a choice other than to do what God wanted to do? That's a fair question. Now, let me burst your bubble here, real quick. I don't have time to answer that today, not at length, right? But let me say, real quick, to it, because I think it's important to, I don't, I don't want to be that guy that brings it up and says, oh, y'all figure it out, right? But, Let me say something that I'm fully confident in. I believe that God in His interaction with His creation is that He allows His creation to have free, meaningful choice. Every single one of us are able to make free, meaningful choices. At the same time, I believe that God is sovereign over all things. You say, well, Michael, that just seems like a natural tension that exists. And you're exactly right. And guess what? I'm okay with that tension. I don't have to understand it. But I do know as this is unfolding with Pharaoh, there's three Hebrew words that are used speaking to this issue. One of the words that is used is speaking to Pharaoh hardening his own heart. And as you look, as you read through these, you will see at times it is clear that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So it was his choice. It was his action to, the word is heavy, to make his heart heavy, to be stubborn. Know anybody like that, right? That that he was choosing to act in that way. At other times, the word that is used speaks of God being the one doing the action on Pharaoh's heart. And another time, there's a word that is using that is more neutral, that doesn't speak to whether it's, it's unknown, whether it is Pharaoh doing it himself or God doing it. There are some be- that would say, well, well f- what, what happens is that, that Pharaoh chooses to harden his own heart. It is his choosing. And then God fortifies that choice in God's action towards him to accomplish his purposes. Now, again, for some of you, you're like, I, I don't care. All right. But but it's a fair question, and listen, we should not be scared to think deeply about God or even to press into these tension points. I think, I think we can love God with our mind in that way. But there's some things like this that, listen, there's some people that say, hey, this is exactly what it means. And I'd say, you're a liar, or you don't know, or number one, you're just arrogant, right? There's just some things that are bigger than us to fully be able to grasp and understand. But here's what I do believe, is that he has the power to accomplish his purposes. And what is significant here. I, I think for us, seeing God's power revealed in this moment is that for the people of Egypt, Pharaoh was more than just the leader of their people. He was more than just the king. He was, in many ways, the embodiment of the gods, if not embodiment himself as close as he could possibly be to the embodiment. They, many believe that he was actually the son of Ra, the sun god who was the king of all the gods. And here we see God showing his power that even the, 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 the human, the leader of the Egyptians, who they saw as the embodiment of the gods, God has control over him. God is revealing his power. So today we recognize that he's unparalleled in his power. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, if that's you today, man, that should give you all the confidence in the world, right? Right? When we consider about who's sitting in the back of the tube, when you're going down the slide of life and the craziness that come with all its dips and turns, you can recognize that if I'm in Christ, I am no longer standing in judgment before this powerful God. The Bible says I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm now a child of his. That means I'm on his team. And that makes all the difference the same time, if you don't have that confidence in your life that you've given your life to follow Jesus, the Bible says that you're opposed to this God. That your sin is an eternal affront. As, as one uh, pastor said, that, that sin is cosmic treason towards a holy God. And oftentimes we want to dismiss it or sweep it under the rug or convince ourselves that it's not that big a deal. But the reality is, is that our sin separates us from God. And there is an eternal punishment that will come for those that are not in Christ. That judgment that we see here in the plagues is a judgment that will ultimately come towards sin. But man, if you're in Christ today, you don't have to sit here in fear. You sit here in great confidence. Listen, when life is out of control, as we started this series in week one, right? That unsettled doesn't equal unguided. And the one who is guiding this tube is the one who in the greatest nation of the world and all 80 of its gods that it would present, that it would build its life upon, and our God would humiliate all of them. There is no God like our God. Amen? There's great confidence in that today. And so in all this power, we see the might of God. But there is more to God than just his might and his power. As we see this story unfolding of God delivering his people, we see the plagues reveal his power. But the Passover confirms his heart. The Passover confirmed God's heart. The last plague that we see here that unfolds is the death of the firstborn. This was the ultimate judgment that was coming for Pharaoh. Uh, As we see, there was not an opportunity for Pharaoh to respond to this. It was simply God had had enough. It was time for a final judgment to come. God had told them beforehand, the people get the people ready. Uh, What would happen is that this is referred to here, the destroyer, the death angel would come through. and, And the firstborn, not just of humanity, but also of the livestock would die. And yet in that judgment of these people who had oppressed God, and God's people. It oppressed God's people. There's a picture here of mercy. And in fact, it's a theme that we see all throughout Scripture that there is mercy in the face of judgment. We find it in the Passover, in the instruction that He is going to give to His people. Now I want you to consider something for a moment. Were the people of Israel any better than the people of Egypt? No. This is simply God's mercy that is being extended, his unmerited kindness towards them. And in this place of mercy, he says to them, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go and I want you to take a year old unblemished, either sheep or goat, and I want you to sacrifice it. And as you do, I want you to take the blood and I want you to place it on the doorpost and on the lintel on the top of the door. And I want you to take that goat, take, take that sheep, and you go in, and I want you to roast it. I want you to eat all the meat, all the organs, roast it over the fire, right? Not on the Traeger, right? It's got to be on the fire, right? Don't, don't boil it. He's given specific instructions here. you to have bread, but it's to be unleavened. There's to be no yeast in the house. And so there is this meal, and there is this community fellowship that is happening in the midst of what he's going to do here. But we see in this moment, it tells us as it's going to unfold that that God does as he says he's going to do. And then when judgment comes, it says that when it gets to the house and it sees the blood covering the door, that literally it passes over. The judgment passes over the house and those that are in the house. And this is when we look at God's story of redemption for us. This is I think the clearest picture in the Old Testament of what God is ultimately doing in his redemption through his son Christ, right? For many of you, I don't need to draw the line today. You see it. It's very clear. It's very, very obvious that in the face of judgment, there is mercy to be had simply by the will and compassion of God himself. And so we see, we see this blood that is going to make all the difference, a blood that was specific, right? Right? Not just any blood would do, but it has to be a specific type of blood, an unblemished animal, a sheep or a goat. It was a blood that was sacrificial. It would mean that the protection, that salvation would come only through the death of something on their behalf. It was a blood that was saving. Ultimately, it was a blood that was saving. Their only hope was not in, in how long they had been Jewish. It was not how committed they had been to their Jewish faith. It, it had nothing to do with how they had stood in the face of the oppression of the Egyptians. It had nothing. It was solely on the merit of was the blood present? And so when we go to the New Testament and we see Jesus show up, We don't skip over the fact, we we don't minimize the reality that when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He recognizes that Jesus, there is a specific Messiah that is coming and behold, that's him. A recognition that this blood was sacrificial as Jesus there in the Lord's Supper as he would take the cup and say, this cup is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sin. It was a recognition of Jesus himself communicated to his closest followers that I'm going to give of myself, I'm going to sacrifice of myself, what? For your salvation. And then ultimately it was saving. It was was saving. It was understanding that with Christ, that in Him we have the redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. And again, it has nothing to do with your merit or mine. It has nothing to do with our performance. It has everything to do with the blood of Christ that has been shed for us. And just as that judgment would come for those, for the Egyptians who had oppressed God's people, in the same way for those that are not in Christ, judgment is reserved for you. But the hope today, As the Bible says, that God doesn't just reveal his power, but that God's character is one that is unmatched in mercy. And that God loves you and that he sent Christ who gave his life to shed his blood. So the Bible says that when you stand before God in judgment, you can recognize that in that moment, who's in the back of the tube makes all the difference. Christ gave His life and that you have trusted in Him. You have repented. You have turned from your past. You have turned from sin. And you have turned towards Him in faith recognizing that His sacrifice on the cross was Him shedding His blood so that you could be saved. Today, if you've never made that decision, I hope that today will be the day of salvation for you. That you trust that what Jesus did on the cross can make all the difference in your life. And what's important here in this moment is not just the moment itself, but as God is setting up the Passover, He clearly communicates to them that this is a part of a yearly festival that they're to celebrate. Why? Because when they get into the wilderness, He wants them to remember that their God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one true God and no other gods rival him. When they get into the promised land, they get in around the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the bites, That's bad, I know. All right. Uh, when... <laughs> I just needed you to be with me, all right? Um, When when, when you get around these other people, these other nations who have these gods, and you're tempted to go worship those gods, every year you're going to have this festival to remember that it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who delivered you, who showed you mercy. Every year, remember, remember, remember that our God is unmatched in mercy and power. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. That's why in the last two years we've been taking the Lord's Supper more often, if you haven't noticed, because we want to remember. We want to remember that in the face of the idols that this world offers to us, that our hearts so often want to drift into worshiping those idols, when we take the Lord's Supper, it reminds us how foolish that is. Because our God is the one who delivers. last thing I want us to see here today is this, is that the Exodus fulfilled God's promise. Chapter 13 We see this moment after the instruction has been given for the Passover that ultimately he is going to deliver his people. And this in many ways isn't just about doing what he said. This is about affirming who he is. God's promise that he had given to his people, we've seen it in this series and in this book beginning in chapter 3. If you remember, it says that God heard the cries of his people. He saw their oppression. He remembered them and he knew them then he comes to Moses and he says, listen, I am coming to rescue them. I am coming to deliver them. And I'm going to deliver them to the promised land. I'm going to deliver, them to, this, to deliver them to this land that I have for them. But it goes back further than that. In Genesis chapter 15, the covenant he's going to make with Abraham. He's going to say, listen, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people, right? I, this is a forever relationship, right, that he's committing to. has nothing to do by their merit, by their performance. It is God in his mercy. He is choosing them. And in doing so, he says, listen, you're going to be my people and you're going to go into a land, to a foreign land. You're going to be a resident alien in this foreign land for four generations. Then I'm going to bring you back. And if we had time today to read through this, we would read where it says that they were in Egypt for 430 years. And now God was going to bring them back. Several things I want you to see here briefly in the Exodus. Chapter chapter 13, verse 17 through 22. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So he led the people around toward the Red Sea along the road of the wilderness. I just want you to catch this. As God is going to deliver his people, he's not going to deliver them in the way that made the most sense to them. This is not the path that Google Maps would have given them. Remember, unsettled doesn't equal unguided. God knew what he was doing. He was caring for his people, even in taking them on a path that didn't make sense. We see here his faithfulness as it continues. And the Israelites left the land of Egypt in battle formation. I love that. I love that it's not a defensive leaving, but it's on the offensive. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear a solemn oath, saying, God will certainly come to your aid. And then you must take my bones with you from this place. Man, I love this. Remember how they've gotten to this place, right? Joseph sold into slavery, ends up in Egypt, becomes literally, well, arguably the most powerful man in Egypt. His brothers show up because of famine in the land. They recognize him. We see the forgiveness that, extended, that is extended, what, got, what uh, Satan meant for evil, God intended for good, right? And so now they're in the land, but Joseph knew this is not home. But there's a day that is coming that God will come to our aid. And when they do, get me out of here. He knew that God would be faithful. And as they carried those bones, I don't know who carried them, and I don't know who got the short end of the straw, all right? But, but they carried them out. Why? Because God was faithful. And ultimately, as they're going to take him out of the land, take them as God's going to take him out of the land. He's going to do so with His presence every step of the way. Look at me in verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male. Excuse me, that's not what I wanted. There we go. Uh, Verse 21. The Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day and a pillar of fire to give them light at night so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night never left its place in front of the people. When God sent them out, into a land that they didn't know, unsettled, didn't equal, unguided. Why? Because God was there. His presence was there. And this Passover and, 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 and this deliverance and this journey and the, 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 the promised land, it's a great picture for us of the life of the Christian to be reminded that, that when we come to faith in Christ, we are delivered from the slavery of sin. We are delivered from the oppression of the prince of the power of, this, of the air, of, of this world. But what we recognize is that when we are delivered from the slavery of sin, we don't walk straight into glory, do we? But we know that God has promised that glory is coming. We find ourselves in this journey. We find ourselves tossed into this slide of life that we're now trying to navigate. And the hope for you and I today is who's in the back. The one in the back of the tube is the one who's guiding us every step of the way. Whether it's a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night, whether it's his word that he has given us, whether it's the affirmation of what the Spirit of God's doing in your heart by some trusted, faithful friends, God is with us and is helping us every step of the way. It makes all the difference in the world to know who's in the back of the tube. And I hope today, number one, if you're not a believer, I hope today that today would be the moment for you, that you would give your life to him, trusting that the blood of Jesus can cover your sin and you can be in a right relationship with the God who is rivaled by no one else. If you're here today and you are a believer in Christ and life is just tossing you left and right all around and you feel like you don't have anything to hold to, that you would be reminded today that the one in the back of the two is rivaled by no other and that he is the one that is with you every step of the way. In the 1800s, there was a man by the name of William Ogden. He was a very gifted uh, man musically, basically the very opposite of me. All right? um, he, he was a guy that could, could hear the tune and go play it immediately on the piano, just that, that incredibly gifted. Civil War comes along. He's drug into the Civil War, serves in the Civil War. In fact, even in his time in the Civil War, he, um, uh, he, he gathers a group of men around to create a choir, and they become very popular as they travel around and they're singing. After the Civil War, he continues to use this gift and leverages it for the sake of the kingdom. He not only leads churches in music, but he begins to write. And he writes hymns that are, that are sung even today. And He recognizes in the significance of what we've talked about today, the significance of who God is and the fact that our God and our God alone can deliver us. I want you to listen to this hymn that he wrote. I'm not going to read all of it, but but I love that the The overarching theme we see here again and again is of God's deliverance. And he says this, tis the grandest theme. It is the greatest truth. It is the truest reality. He says, tis the grandest theme through the ages rung. Tis the grandest theme for a mortal tongue. Tis the grandest theme the world e'er sung. Our God is able to deliver thee. "'Tis the grandest theme in earth or main. "'Tis the grandest theme for a mortal strain. "'Tis the grandest theme, tell the world again, "'Our God is able to deliver thee. "'Tis the grandest theme, let the tidings roll "'to the guilty heart, to the sinful soul. "'Look to God in faith, he will make thee whole. "'Our God is able to deliver thee.'" Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, We hope, again, that you were uh, encouraged by what God had to say for you and for your life. I just want to extend an invitation for you today. Maybe today you realize that you need Jesus in your life. Maybe today you just need to take that next step in your spiritual walk, or maybe you've got a spiritual need, and I want you to know that we would love to come alongside you and serve you any way that we can. Feel free to reach out to us at firstwest.cc, or you can call the church 318-322-5104, and we would love to help you in what God is doing in your life. Have a great day.